0: Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes.
1: In our high-speed, high-stress economy, Countless employees and managers at every level are fed up, burned out, and unfulfilled at work. Does that sound like you? You see, we place unrealistic expectations on ourselves, our workers, about performance. We're hyper-competitive and we lose our sense of balance and well-being. So add to the mix this demand placed on human beings to always be plugged in, and then we have this lack of resources and people in leadership positions that really don't know how to lead. So then the question becomes, should we even expect to be happy at work anymore? Well, my guest today answers this question with a resounding yes. And she makes the most compelling case yet that happiness at work is attainable. And she's going to tell us how. Dr. Annie McKee is the author of How to Be Happy at Work, The Power of Purpose, hope and friendship. She is a University of Pennsylvania scholar, bestselling co-author of three books published by Harvard Business Review Press. She's a speaker and advisor to global companies and quite frankly, this is one of the best conversations I've had to date on the podcast. So let's dive in. All right, so I'm here talking to Dr. Annie McKee and it's a pleasure to finally spend time with you. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, Annie.
2: Thank you, Marcella. it's great to be here.
1: So I always start with a question that help us to kind of get to know you a little bit. It's a nice breaker question. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days?
2: Hey, that's a great question. You know, Marcel, I'm really lucky. I have a a life that I love and work that I love. And in every corner, I can find something to be grateful for, whether it's waking up and seeing my three dogs, that makes me really happy, or thinking about a couple of people I'm going to be with that day. It doesn't take much to make me happy. And it doesn't take much to make me feel grateful. So I feel very lucky.
1: Good. And it's uh, funny that I mentioned that question, because we're going to dive into your book in a minute, which has a happiness theme. So before we get to your book, walk us a little bit through your professional background a bit and tell us how you arrived at, at doing the work that you do.
2: Ah. Well, I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, and I lead an executive doctoral program there for senior executives who actually pause. They don't stop working, but they come in and do their doctorate while they continue working. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. How did I end up there? Wow, long story, but let's just say it wasn't a straight and narrow path. Um, In my 20s, I hadn't even gone to college. I was doing all sorts of things to make ends meet. And finally did go to college after my third child was born and then went on to get a doctorate, got really excited about leadership and started studying it and teaching it mm. and consulting and working with a lot of people and hooked up with Dan Goleman and Richard Boyatzis. And, you know, that sort of set me on the path of writing, which I truly love.
1: Excellent. So let's talk about your book, How to Be Happy at Work, The Power of Purpose, Hope and Friendship." And I want to ask you, why did you write this book?
2: Why did I write the book? Again, a really good question. I had spent and still spend most of my time working on leadership, whether it's studying leadership or consulting or coaching, working in organizations all over the world. And in all honesty, I had had no intention of writing a book on happiness. But here's what happened, Marcel. Uh, Over the course of about seven or eight years and even now, I and my team had been going into organizations and conducting studies. They didn't feel like academic studies, they felt like conversations, et cetera, but we really applied a rigorous method to those conversations, to looking at what people said, and we analyzed what they said to give the company some insights about leadership, about emotional intelligence, about their management uh, practices and about culture. And it it was great, you know, and over the course of the year, we had done what, maybe 35 or 40 of these studies, thousands of interviews. And you know what, Marcel, at a certain point, I started thinking, okay, this is great. We're making progress here. We're helping these companies and these leaders, but I feel like something's missing. And I honestly didn't know what it was. So I said to myself, listen, the feeling became really strong, you know, and I said to myself, let's go back. And take a look at some of those interviews, maybe all of them, if we can find them, and the reports, and see, is there something there that we didn't pick up on? Mm. So I did that. I went back and read as many of the interviews as I could find, at least the ones translated into English. And I looked at the reports. And you know what, Marcel? I did find something. Mm. I found that people around the world, whether it was a rural province in South Africa or a big energy company in Europe or media company here in the United States, people were telling us beyond a shadow of a doubt that they want to be happy at work. They want to love their jobs. They want to feel that it's meaningful. And if it is, they're more productive.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, Annie, that's counter to what we imagine and even our belief system coming into the workplace. We don't think of happiness. The workplace is a place where it's a dog-eat-dog competitive environment. There are political underpinnings and people just, we don't think about coming to work and getting up in the morning and saying, oh, I can't wait to be at work because it's going to make me happy. So why this whole idea of happiness in the workplace seems so elusive for most working professionals. Why is that?
2: Well, it is elusive for many working uh, professionals, and in all honesty, I run into more unhappy people in my work than I find happy people. Frankly, on a human level, I don't think that's acceptable, Hmm. but let's talk about why that is. I really dug into it as I was writing this book and went out and talked to some more people and really examined my own life, too. One of the issues, I think, is that our organizations and our approach to work comes out of history, comes out of the industrial era, mm. when businesses and companies and even academia were trying to figure out how do we get the most out of people in any given day. And workplaces were truly dehumanizing um, throughout most of the last century and even into this century. And we actually believe that's how they were supposed to be that you're not supposed to be friends with people at work and work isn't where you have fun. Work is where you, you know, get your hands dirty, all of those old myths. So I think those old myths that have, we've internalized them. We believe them in our hearts and souls and we don't speak them very often, but we think work should be ugly and hard. And that is not the case. Why would we condemn ourselves to a lifetime of spending our time Doing something that's hard and ugly and terrible. That's just not human nature. Human nature is to seek goodness and look for hope and to make a contribution. That's what we really want to do.
1: And it would make sense because we spend more waking hours at work than anywhere else. So there are so many different perspectives on happiness. In the workplace, you know, so many self help books, positive psychology books, you name it. It's all out there. Lots of gurus talking about flavor of the month, happiness philosophies, right? Your perspective is different, though. Tell us about it.
2: I did go back and read all of that. I read Western philosophy. People have been writing about happiness for a couple of thousand years in the West. I read Eastern philosophy. People have been thinking about, talking about, and writing about happiness in the Eastern traditions for a very long time. And I looked at all the positive psychology research, which, by the way, has exploded in the last 10 years. And it's exploded around the relationship between happiness and work and happiness and productivity. So, yeah, there are a lot of different definitions of happiness. There's the hedonistic definition that being happy means fulfilling our every wish and desire. I really didn't think I was hitting on it when I was reading those definitions. So, again, I went back to those interviews and I I asked myself, what are these people telling us? What do they mean when they say they want to be happy at work? And I came up with a definition that I think is pretty practical and very much focused on the modern workplace, When we are happy at work, we feel that our jobs and our tasks are meaningful. We feel that we're making a contribution, that our work has purpose. When we're happy at work, we're hopeful about the future and not just about our careers and not just about our companies. We're hopeful about the future of our lives And when we're happy at work, we have good, warm, friendly relationships. So my definition of happiness at work is a sense of fulfillment as a result of purposeful, meaningful work, a hopeful outlook about the future, and good friends in the workplace.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. That's really the bulk of your, the framework really for your book is those three things, hope, purpose, and friendships, right? That's right. So Let's take it a step further and talk about uh, employee engagement. I say that with a giggle only because we've been reading what Gallup has been hammering since 2000 and how the needle hasn't really moved much. Although I read a report, I think uh, earlier this month, it says that it's now up to 34%, which is barely registering a little bit. But tell us a little bit about the link between happiness and employee engagement.
2: Intuitively, there seems like there would be a link, but the research to date It hasn't been very robust to tell the truth. Mm. Just recently, I had a doctoral student who is an executive herself actually do a study on the linkage between engagement and happiness, and she's just getting ready to publish the results on that. Suffice it to say, however, that the early signals are that there is a very strong linkage between happiness and engagement in the workplace. Well, why does that matter? Gallup has done a lot of studies about the relationship between engagement and success and productivity, both on the individual level and the organizational level. Engagement matters a lot when it comes to productivity and to success. And if the two are related, and we think they are, I've thought they are for a long time, and some of the other scholars also have. If they are related, then we need to look at how do we create an environment where people can be happy at work so they do become engaged.
1: Mm, mm, I love it. So Annie, I want to touch a little bit on the three, purpose, hope, and friendships. Can you give us some practical examples of how does a management team go about designing a workplace where there's meaningful work? What does that mean exactly?
2: Yeah. Meaningful work takes a lot of forms. And one of the mistakes that managers often make, especially senior managers, is believing that the organizational mission will provide enough meaning for employees that it sort of solves that problem. And You know, it can help. There's no question about it. It can absolutely help. But it's usually pretty far away from people's day to day jobs. Yeah. If you feel that your work is purposeful, a couple of things are happening. Number one, you're making a contribution. So if you're trying to create an organization where purpose is at the forefront, you want norms that really support recognition and appreciation and truly seeing what people are doing. And another thing that goes into this sense of purpose is being able to live our values at work. That's a little bit tricky because we all work in really diverse workplaces. Many of us have very different values based on experience or where we grew up, religion, etc., right? Um, I'm not advocating that we all need to have exactly the same values, just the opposite, in fact. We need to be careful, to be curious about one another's beliefs and values, what drives us, Hmm. and then find those points of linkage, find those points where we come together and you know bottom line we're all human beings and there are universal values things around respect and you know how we treat each other and that sort of thing that everybody virtually everybody on the planet really does want and believe in so finding where we connect and then living those values so making a contribution and living our values in the collective, in our teams, in our organization, is a way, is the way, I think, to feel that our work is truly purposeful and meaningful.
1: Okay, so challenge my assumption that it seems to me in, in my train of thought is that those things like value and creating purpose and meaningful work naturally leads down the path to, I feel hopeful, but hope something entirely separate.
2: Actually, I think you're onto something. I've never thought of it exactly that way, but if we go back to some of the neuroscience about what happens to our brains when we feel good, <laughs> there's, there's quite a lot of research coming out. You know this, Marcel, about uh, how our brains, how our our cognition responds to our emotions. Right? When we feel good, like we're making a contribution, we're living our values. Our brains literally open up and we're able to see things in a different light, process more information, solve those problems. And yes, indeed, I think that would lead to more hopefulness and
1: optimism. Very, very cool. I love it. Okay. And then there's friendships. Now unpack that for us. It's not like you're you know, a manager thinking about, oh, I need to make sure that my team are creating friendships. But so what's the impact of friendship according to the research?
2: Yeah, well, to go back to the Gallup research for a second on engagement, one of the things that they've found is that one of the key indicators of whether a person will be in a job a year from whenever they take an instrument is whether they have a good friend at work.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that, there's some research behind this. Again, this one, there are a lot of myths swirling around friendship and the workplace. And the biggest myth of all is you can't be friends with the people at work there's a grain of truth in everything. Right. And what's behind that is, well, if you're friendly with people, you won't be able to be objective and have the tough conversations. But if we really dig into that, okay, what, first of all, what do we mean by friendship? Yeah. for all the introverts out there and I'm one of them. I do not mean going to dinner every night or out to the bar or on vacation with your colleagues. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about building relationships that are founded on trust curiosity, respect, and warmth, as well as a caring, a willingness to help one another. Those kind of relationships, my colleague at, at Penn, Sigal Barsad, calls this companionate love, which I think is just a, a great term, companionate love, that we do experience in the workplace. That actually is possible, and, and here's the catch. If you have those kind of relationships, the tough conversations, they're still tough, but they're better. They're more fruitful and they're not as painful because the individuals involved know that underneath all the difficulties are trust, caring, warmth, respect, and curiosity.
1: Mm, so love in a workplace does matter.
2: It matters. It's not a taboo word anymore. And uh, you've probably seen the Harvard Grant study. They studied graduates from way back in the 40s for decades. And there were a couple of other studies who studied people from different places doing the same thing, looking at every single thing you can think of it every year for physical health, relationships, career success, monetary success, all these things. And one of the leaders of the Harvard Grant study, George Valent, a few years ago, when asked, what was the single most important uh, thing when it comes to success in life. And his answer was love.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that study. And you talk about how there are some dangers with happiness that we can fall for these, what you call happiness traps. So what should we be looking out for to, you know, avoid these things that may strip us of our happiness at work?
2: Right. Earlier in our conversation, Marcel, you mentioned that you know a lot of people don't even think they should be happy in the workplace. And and we had a little conversation about how many people really are unhappy. So as I was doing this research, I also asked the question, what prevents us from being happy at work? And you're immediately going to get the obvious. It's that horrible manager, and they exist. We need to keep working on that because we've got too many managers who either benignly don't know what they're doing and cause damage or actually deliberately destructive. We got some work to do, right? It's true. Or there's a culture, toxic culture, political backstabbing, et cetera, that also exists. And we've got a lot of work to do there. But I went further than that. I asked the question, what can we do? Most of us can't change the whole culture of our organization. And sometimes we're stuck with that manager for a while. What can we do? And I actually found out that there are some happiness traps that we set for ourselves. One of them, Marcel, is uh, what I call the overwork trap. And it's just what it sounds like, working too much. Uh, I don't care how much we love our jobs or how exciting that project is. If we work day in and day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, without respite, without renewal, without practices that allow us to come back to ourselves, we will burn out. Mm. And it is pretty hard to be happy when you're burned out. And it's particularly difficult these days because we carry our work in our pockets. So it it takes a great deal of, frankly, emotional intelligence, self-awareness and self-management to ensure that we build a life that is full, that is ripe with not just work, but the things that we love, whether that be family or being out in nature or whatever it is, we've got to have more than just work in our lives. Mm. Another trap that I'll just do one more quickly, Marcel, because I think it's really relevant to our listeners is the ambition trap. And people are probably saying, well, what's wrong with ambition? And well, there's nothing wrong with ambition to a point. Ambition is great. It gets us up in the morning. It has us reach for the stars. It has us really try to be our very best and to succeed. What happens, however, is that sometimes... We get tramped on that hamster wheel where we're chasing goal after goal, getting there, grabbing it, succeeding, not celebrating, and just on to the next. A decade or so of that, that'll leave you feeling pretty cynical and empty.
1: Wow. Wow. So Annie, um, a lot of our listeners are people in management roles from you know supervisory all the way up to the C-suite. And Some of them may be already feeling overwhelmed because we're, you know, we're throwing so many concepts and ideas out at them. And they're maybe imagining, how do I even practically demonstrate purpose, hope, and friendships in a way that makes business sense for me? So let's talk about just maybe bring this down to the ground floor and maybe one or two things, one or two practical things that if they were to get the ball rolling, what would they start with to create these happy environments?
2: Yeah, I'm going to answer that a couple of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, The first answer is that if you want to create a resonant, happy climate in your workplace, you've got to start with yourself. Mm. You've got to do the audit. What's going on with me? Am I stuck in any of these happiness tracks? So use your emotional intelligence to really become self-aware about where you are in your life, uh, your approach to your work, anything that might be getting in your own way and and use your self-management skills to make some slight changes. You're not going to change everything overnight, but a little change here and a little change over there can make a great big difference. So number one, if we want to build really good environments on our teams, a resonant microclimate on our teams, we've got to start with ourselves. And, you know, it takes some reflection. I would really encourage people to, find a way to adopt some sort of regular reflective practice, whether that's a walk in the morning where you're not sort of consumed with the to-do list, but you're thinking about what's important to you about your work, what's important to you about your life, um, the difference you want to make today. Or maybe it's quiet time in in the evenings. You don't need much, but some sort of uh, reflection practice, mindfulness practice actually really does make a difference in our ability to slow ourselves down and take the right actions for ourselves and for others. So that's one, start with ourselves. The second thing is about our environment, whether we're leading a team or a large division or even a company. It's really important to take stock of the emotional reality of your workplace. Sometimes we just become immune to what it feels like to be in the workplace. So, or we sort of ignore it. It hurts, but we just can't deal with it. Take stock. What is working and what is not? How does it feel in the office? And involve other people in this, you know, with the intention of trying to understand what aspects of our climate are serving us well? What norms that emerge out of our culture are serving us well? Um, what values do we share that if we highlighted those, emphasize those, we'd all feel better about this place? And, and which of all of those are either getting in our way or downright toxic and then start to make some changes together?
1: Yeah. And it's funny how so much of what you just mentioned takes a a great deal of self-awareness, but in raising your capacity to be self-aware of your environment, starting with you first, like you said, you're actually elevating your emotional intelligence in the process to handle and manage these different things that come flying at you.
2: It's funny you should mention that. You are so right. Um, Another one of our executive doctoral students, uh, Matt Lippincott, is now doing quite a lot of work on the topic of mindfulness and emotional intelligence. He studied executives and he asked the question, does a mindfulness practice enhance emotional intelligence? And his results were stellar. The answer is yes, it does. Yes, it does. And this doesn't mean you need to be meditating an hour a day or doing yoga twice a day. It does not mean that. It means that you've developed some regular reflective practice. And we know, too, from the neuroscientists as well as uh, a number of both medical researchers as well as the Dalai Lama's group, et cetera, that mindfulness actually does change our brains.
1: Yes, this is definitely good news for all of us. Annie, I want to transition to a topic that I ask every guest that comes on the show, because I'm trying to build a body of anecdotal evidence about fear and why so many people lead through fear instead of principles of care and love and compassion.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. You know, Marcel, I've uh, worked very closely with a lot of executives, and I think, If I were to ask the question, what is the most common issue that I see in people in managerial or leadership roles? And maybe this is broader. Maybe it's in the world. Who knows? But I see people in organizations. If I ask the question, what is really common? What's most common? You know what comes up for me? Mm. A sense of insecurity. Oh, boy. A sense of insecurity. You have to wonder. People are at the top of their game, sometimes the top of their organizations. They're talented, they're successful, they're good people. And yet underneath it all, there's this grain of insecurity, which, Marcel, we all have. Mm. We all have it. Somehow, in our current modern world, we're not equipping people to deal with that insecurity early in our lives. And it ends up causing a lot of pain for us and for the people around us, because I think it is one of the reasons people lead through fear and intimidation. They're hiding, Marcel, they're hiding. They don't want to be caught themselves. Yeah. And, you know, I really don't have the answer for how we fix this other than I think we need to start taking a look at it in ourselves and in the people around us and start finding ways to build ourselves up. Mm-hmm and build other people up. And then maybe we'll start chipping away at it.
1: Yeah, that's good advice, Annie. Annie, let's talk about what you're reading right now. Anything on your device or maybe you're on your nightstand that you're just consuming?
2: <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, you'll get a laugh out of this, Marcel. I write nonfiction books and articles. I largely read fiction. I adore it. I go through a book or two a week. But I thought, okay, what nonfiction am I reading now that I really like? And you're probably aware of this book. It came out last fall. I just actually picked it up. I actually have a little piece in it myself, but I just picked it up last week to really dive into it. It is a book published by Francis Hasselbein, one of my true heroes, and Marshall Goldsmith. And it's called Work is Love Made Visible. And it's a collection of really short, really great Essays by some of the best thinkers in the world today—very practical, on point about the nature of work and about how we can humanize organizations. It's fabulous.
1: Wow, I'm so glad you dropped out. One—it's immediately on my Amazon wish list. It's so good, little nugget. So, personally, Annie, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like our listeners to know?
2: Well, we've been talking about happiness at work. And I think what I'd like everybody to think about is how our approach to work and how we feel about work affects our entire lives. I've had a time in my life where I was truly miserable in my job. Probably everybody has. And I know I brought it home. I know I did. It affected everybody, my kids, my partner, And my friends, probably, even my health. So we need to pay attention to how we feel about work if we want our lives to be full and fulfilling and happy.
1: Mm, Fantastic. Annie, is there anything I should have asked but didn't?
2: You know, you've asked great questions, Marcel. I think we're good. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Where can they uh, find you?
2: Yep. Best place to find me is on my website, Annie at AnnieMcKee.com.
1: There you have it. She is Dr. Annie McKee, and her latest book is How to Be Happy at Work, The Power of Purpose, Hope, and Friendships. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Marcel.
1: So when I come back after this short message, I will have three tips that you can apply immediately to making yourself a happier person in the workplace. And I will do that after this short message.
0: There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club. Change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old school command and control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with a growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here.
1: What a great conversation. And like I said in the beginning, I'm wondering if you agree with me, if you're a regular listener, that was one of the best conversations I've had to date. Now, there's a lot of stuff Annie said that we can apply to our work today. But here's what stood out for me. Annie found that everywhere around the world, people were telling her that, yes, they want to be happy at work. They want to love their jobs. They want to find meaning in what they do. And you know, as great as your company mission may be, alone, it doesn't provide enough meaning to solve this employee engagement crisis because you know it's usually far away from people's jobs. So to have truly meaningful and purposeful work, and he says two things need to happen. So here's the application if you're a leader. One, people need to be making a positive contribution. So you want to have norms that support recognition and appreciation. And And what your people are doing in the trenches to be in your line of sight. And two, to have a sense of purpose and meaning, people have to live out their values at work or be curious about one another's values. You know, since we're all different and come from different backgrounds and belief systems. So we want to find those points that link us together. Finding what connects us and then living out those values in our teams. This is how we feel our work is truly purposeful and meaningful. And so when you put it all together, you'll have created the conditions for workplace happiness. I wanna thank Dr. Annie McKee for coming out on the show and teaching us so many great lessons. And I wanna thank you, the Love and Action Nation, for joining the conversation. You know, this is a growing movement, but it only grows to the extent that you share it and you talk about it and you like it and you post it. So if you want the show notes to this episode, look for it at marcellschwantes.com and you hit the Love in Action podcast tab. Join us next time when I sit down and chat with Mark C. Crowley, author of Lead from the Heart. On behalf of my rock star production team at One Stone Creative, thank you, ladies. I'm Marcel Schwantes. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.